Our second Bible reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 2 through 15. This is what Scripture says. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violence take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Please uh, bow with me for a word of prayer. Our Father, we pray now that the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts might be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer, for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. You ever have doubts? I suppose just to ask the question is to answer it. Of course you've had doubts. We've all had doubts about one thing or another at one time or another. Sometimes our doubts are trivial, right? I doubt my favorite team is going to win the championship this year. But sometimes our doubts are more serious. You ever have doubts about Jesus? If you have, you're certainly not alone. In chapter 20 of John's Gospel, we're introduced to one of Jesus' followers, Thomas, whom we all know as Doubting Thomas. I remember being a child and hearing that name for the first time. I thought that was his name, Doubting Thomas. A little later, I realized what a terrible name that is, a nickname that is, to go through eternity with. But this was his disciple who refused to believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead unless he could see for himself, touch the wounds, see for himself. In Luke chapter 24, remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus who said, we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They perhaps had moved beyond doubt and believed that their hopes were dashed. And then at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 28, this is after Jesus was raised even, in chapter 28 we read this, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. After all, can it really be that this Jesus, born to a teenage mother in the middle of the East in the first century, is the long-awaited Messiah, the one foretold by the Hebrew Scriptures? Is this the Messiah, the one who is coming to set all things right? Ever ask yourselves that? Is this Jesus, a young man here in Matthew 11, really the Savior of the world? Very God of very God, as the Nicene Creed puts it. You see, the question raised by John the Baptist in verse 3, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Is the question all Israel had to answer in those days. 
and it's the question each of you must answer as well. Now perhaps you've settled that question yourselves, but that question will confront your children, your grandchildren, your siblings, even your parents. It's a question that confronts every generation. Is Jesus the one or isn't he? Is there perhaps some other route to salvation and deliverance, some other Messiah? Well, our scripture this morning confronts us with two questions. In verses 2 through 6, we're confronted with the question, who is Jesus? And then in verses 7 through 15, we're confronted with the question, who is John the Baptist? And the two questions are related, since knowing who John the Baptist is will tell us a great deal about who Jesus is. Now, why is this important? Why should you listen? Because doubts about Jesus have to be put to rest. Doubting him makes it very difficult to worship him, to submit to him, to love him, to serve him. And doubting him makes it very difficult to bear witness to him as the world's true king. You know, 1966, at the World Congress on Evangelism in Berlin, the late Anglican churchman and Christian leader John Stott said this, and I'm quoting here, Before the church can begin to engage in evangelism, it needs an experience and an assurance of forgiveness. The greatest single reason for the church's evangelistic disobedience is to be found in the church's doubts. We are not sure whether the gospel is true, and so because we doubt, we are dumb. Doubts about Jesus have to be put to rest. Let's turn then to verses 2 through 6. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and so forth. Now I'm sure you recall that earlier in Matthew's Gospel, John the Baptist came preparing the way for the Lord. And in chapter 3, in verses 11 and 12, John said this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John is pointing to one who would come in both blessing and judgment. This coming one is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. That's a picture of blessing and judgment. That's what John prophesied. That's what John expected. Now, shortly after this prophecy, we learn that John was arrested and imprisoned. And by the time we get here in chapter 11, he's been in prison possibly for as long as a year. But he gets news of the world outside, and he hears what Jesus was doing, literally the deeds or works of Messiah which would embrace everything we've read up to this point in Matthew 11, Jesus' healings, his teaching, and his growing mission. But all of these things simply puzzle the Baptist. Remember, John had prophesied that this coming one would come in both blessing and judgment. But there's no sign of the judgment John had expected. Jesus just went about doing good, healing, teaching, preaching the good news, bringing blessing to many, but judgment to none. So what sort of Messiah is this? What sort of Messiah is this anyway who abstains from religious practices like fasting, something John's own disciples questioned Jesus about back in chapter 9? And what sort of Messiah is this who spends a lot of time with the wrong kind of people, 
prostitutes, tax collectors, kind of the lowest of the low of Judean society. And what sort of Messiah is this who allows his forerunner, his immediate predecessor, John, to languish in prison? It's very telling, I think, that verse 2 does not say when John heard about the deeds of the Christ, but rather when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ. Now, John is hearing about the deeds of the Christ. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the ears of the deaf are unstopped, the dead are raised. What's he thinking? Surely if Jesus can do this, he can spring me from a Roman prison. Who knows what he was thinking? But if he's truly the Christ, the Messiah, why am I in prison? If he's the Christ, the Messiah, why am I unemployed? If he's the Christ, the Messiah, why can't we conceive? If he's the Christ, the Messiah, why, why, why? Questions we all ask at one time or another. And so John puts his own question there in verse 3. Are you the one who is to come? Shall we look for another? Maybe Jesus, too, is a forerunner like John. Who knows? Are you the one? The you there in verse 3, the Y-O-U, is in the emphatic position grammatically in this sentence. So the question is, are you the one who is to come? John the Baptist is genuinely baffled. And now consider Jesus' response in verses 4 and 5. And we just read those a little bit. Go and tell John what you hear and see. And Jesus recounts some of his healings. It's an indirect response, which is pretty typical of Jesus when he's questioned about his identity. And here Jesus lays out his messianic credentials in summary form in language borrowed largely from Isaiah chapter 35 and Isaiah 61, two prophetic passages that tell what God will do in the age of salvation. Now Isaiah 35, we actually read that last week. In Isaiah 35, it says that when God comes, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And Isaiah 61 says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. As one writer put it, Jesus' response to John is, in effect, ponder my works. They're not what you expect from the Messiah, but they do show that the powers of evil are being undermined and that the Messianic age is very close. Well, the Messianic kingdom was, in fact, advancing. That's Jesus' point down in verse 12. You see that there. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence or has been coming violently, and the violent take it by force. Another translation renders it, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. Well, the Messianic kingdom was advancing, but how do we know that? What's the significance of Jesus' healings? What's Jesus saying to John? What's he saying to us? Well, briefly, the Bible teaches that all sickness, mental and physical, up to and including death, is ultimately traceable to sin. Not necessarily your personal sin, but sin nonetheless. And Jesus came, Matthew tells us, to save his people from their sins. In his miracles of healing, Jesus the Savior is rolling back the effects of sin, undoing it, undoing sin, and giving us all a foretaste of what life in the kingdom will be like, when all sickness, all tears will be done away with. 
You see, the coming of Jesus means liberation and healing, beginning now, though not fully realized till the end. The coming of Jesus means liberation and healing, beginning now, though not fully realized till the end. In other words, Jesus is saying to John, you know, the powers of evil, the powers of darkness are being undermined. Sin is being dealt with. The kingdom is advancing. Now, in giving this response, Jesus is reminding John and you and I of those passages from Isaiah. Just as Isaiah had prophesied, the blessings promised for the end times have broken out, even though the judgments John was expecting are delayed. Judgment is certain. The Isaiah passages refer to it, but it's delayed. It's not immediate. And if John reflects on Jesus' response, he'll have the answer to his question. You see, prior revelation, Old Testament revelation, really is critical in coming to a proper understanding of Jesus. And this was Jesus' point with the disciples on the road to Emmaus that we mentioned earlier in Luke 24. Remember what he said to them. How foolish you are, Jesus said, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, if you need any encouragement, as I sometimes do, any help, in understanding the Old Testament, I'm sure Bernard could recommend a book or two. But one book I like, and one book that I have returned to time and again, is this one. I know we don't usually do advertisements in the church, but this is, this is a good book. It's called Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament. It's by Christopher Wright. Christopher Wright is a British Old Testament scholar, and this book is certainly the uh, result of years of study and reflection, but it's not an academic book. There is no Greek and Hebrew in here. There are no footnotes in here. It's a very readable and helpful book. And for my money, the, the preface alone is worth the price of the book. I've returned to the preface uh, many times. And I know it's not easy to listen to somebody who reads from something, but this is brief, but I think it's great. So just listen to this, what he says. In the midst of the many intrinsically fascinating reasons why Old Testament study is so rewarding, the most exciting to me is the way it never fails to add new depths to my understanding of Jesus. I find myself aware that in reading the Hebrew Scriptures, I'm handling something that gives me a closer common link with Jesus than any archaeological artifact could do. For these are the words he read. These were the stories he knew. These were the songs he sang. These were the depths of wisdom and revelation and prophecy that shaped his whole view of life, the universe, and everything. Above all, this is where Jesus found the shape of his own identity and the goal of his own mission. In short, the deeper you go into understanding the Old Testament, the closer you come to the heart of Jesus. So again, Jesus is reminding John of those passages from Isaiah. And if John reflects on Jesus' response, he'll understand that Jesus is the one foretold by the Hebrew prophets, and there's no need to look for another. Jesus is the long-awaited Hebrew Messiah. And now look at verse 6. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John the Baptist and you and I are being exhorted to trust Jesus in the midst of our doubts, Neither John or any one of you should be tripped up by preconceived ideas of what the Messiah should be like, what he should be and do. Now, it's natural to want all the blessings of the end times now. That's what your yearnings, your longings, even your hopes and dreams are often about. I mean, which one of us doesn't long for perfect mental and physical health? 
wonderful relationships, everlasting joy, and an end to sorrow. It's natural to want all the blessings of the end times now, but that is precisely what Jesus does not offer us. And John the Baptist was the first to learn that lesson. John dies in prison. He dies before Jesus does, before the cross and the resurrection. And like John, we each have to be prepared for something less, for the reality of suffering and trouble, disappointment and even death, all while confessing that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. We have to recognize that Jesus came not to live up to our expectations, but to the call of God on his life. But that does raise a question for us. What about our hurts and troubles and disappointments? What about John the Baptist stuck there in a Roman prison? What does God expect of us in the tough times? Is he looking for a patience that asks no questions, a kind of stoic resignation to the circumstances of life? Or is there another response, one more true to biblical faith? Well, I suggest you have only to read the Psalms to know the answer. The Psalms are human words addressed to God, but words that matter. And what the Psalms teach us, broadly speaking, is that everything must be brought to speech. In other words, what you feel, whether it's joy or sorrow, confusion or pain, must be articulated, it must be spoken, and whatever is brought to speech must be addressed to God. The psalmist does that every time. Now, there are 150 psalms. At least one-third of them, at least 50 psalms, are psalms of lament. These are hymns and prayers of protest and complaint about the difficulties, the sorrows, and the trials of life. And the essence of these prayers of lament is rebellion. Rebellion against the world in its fallenness, its brokenness. It's rebellion, the absolute refusal to accept as normal what is fundamentally abnormal. At all times, Jesus declared in Luke 18, we should pray and not lose heart. We don't simply acquiesce to that which is wrong. What will keep us from praying? What will keep us from losing heart? Well, I suggest it's those very psalms of lament because sorrow turns to joy in every lament but one. Psalm 88, because it deals with death. The movement in every lament is from an expression of despair to the prayer, the demand that God intervene, and finally to deliverance, no matter how long it may take. Every lament but that one ends on a note of joy, and that's our hope. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that John the Baptist had doubts. Even the best of us have doubts. Just don't set your doubts up as authoritative. After all, they're just doubts. Be skeptical of your doubts, but above all, like John, take your doubts to Jesus and take a fresh look at Jesus, particularly in light of Old Testament revelation. Now, just as John had earlier borne witness to Jesus, in 7 through 15, verses 7 through 15, Jesus bears witness to John. Look at verses 7 and 8. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. Trips into the wilderness were not taken lightly, not in the first century. People didn't go hiking in those days. 
and they didn't go to the wilderness to see the grass grow or to see an unstable and fickle person, a reed shaken by the wind. They didn't go to see anyone who was well-dressed either. The people went into the wilderness to see a prophet, a messenger from Yahweh, the God of Israel. And remember, John's was the first voice of prophecy since Malachi, almost 500 years earlier. And now look at verses 9 and 10. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. John was a prophet, yet more than a prophet, for he himself had been prophesied about. Now in verse 10, Jesus is quoting from the prophet Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, but it's not an exact quotation. The text of Malachi, and you can look over at that, that was our first Bible reading. The text of Malachi reads, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. So in Malachi, the messenger who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah the prophet prepares the people for the coming of Yahweh, the God of Israel. The messenger comes, then Yahweh comes. But here Jesus adapts Malachi to say that the messenger prepares the people for the coming of Messiah. Do you see that in verse 10? Behold, I, that's Yahweh, send my messenger before your face. This is widely understood to mean that Yahweh is addressing Messiah. And so here in Matthew, the messenger comes and then Messiah comes. Now, the messenger in both cases is none other than John the Baptist. That's what verse 14 is all about. So the messenger prepares the people for the coming of Yahweh. The messenger prepares the people for the coming of Messiah. In other words, the coming of Jesus Messiah is the coming of Yahweh, the God of Israel, into our world. Jesus is the manifestation of Yahweh, the embodiment of Israel's God. One commentator put it like this, We are to look at Jesus and see in him, however strange it may seem, the personal presence of Israel's God, coming to be with his people and rescue them from the plight their sins have brought upon them. We are to look at Jesus and see in him the personal presence of Israel's God. You see, Jesus is bearing witness to John in such a way that he's pointing back to himself. So who then is Jesus? A baby born in a manger in Bethlehem, yes, but also God himself. God himself come into our world to fix that which is broken and to set all things right. And what about John the Baptist? A prophet more than a prophet. In verse 11, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist, in spite of his doubts, was the greatest man ever. Is that a new thought for you? Think of the great men of world history, and then immediately narrow your focus a little bit to the great men of biblical history. Think of Abraham, Moses, Samuel, Elijah, Daniel, all great men of God. But among those born of women, all humanity, in other words, John the Baptist was the greatest of them all. How so? Well, of all the Old Testament characters, lawgivers, prophets, priests, wise men, kings, only John bore direct witness to Jesus as the Messiah. Only John pointed directly to Jesus as the coming one, the long-awaited Messiah. 
He was the immediate forerunner, the greatest because he pointed people most unambiguously to Jesus. But remember John, John died before certain crucial events, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension. But you and I, who may be among the very least in the kingdom, we live this side of the cross, and we can point people to Jesus even more clearly than John did, and therein lies your greatness. You see, our essential function as disciples, as followers of Christ, is to acknowledge him before people, to bear witness to him as the Messiah, the one long foretold by the Hebrew prophets. And that's where true greatness lies for each one of us. Said another way, true greatness does not lie in becoming popular, in earning more money, in moving to a better uh, home, bigger apartment, what have you. And it doesn't lie in your achievements or the achievements of your children either. True greatness lies in bearing witness to Jesus as the Christ. And such greatness is not beyond any one of you. Do you remember in the book of Acts, chapter 1, and we'll close with this, just before Jesus ascended to the Father, he said to his followers, this is Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus then ascended, and his disciples stood by, looking up into the sky. Two angels appeared and said to them, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? Now, commenting on this passage, the late uh, Anglican churchman John Stott said this, There is something fundamentally anomalous about their gazing up into the sky when they had been commissioned to go to the ends of the earth. It was the earth, not the sky, which was to be their preoccupation. Their calling was to be witnesses, not stargazers. The vision they were to cultivate was not upwards in nostalgia to the heaven which received Jesus, but outwards in compassion to a lost world which needed him. It is the same for us. So friends, let's be determined to go forth from this place with God's help to fulfill our calling and to bear witness to Jesus, recognizing afresh that Jesus committed the entire work of salvation to a community gathered around himself a community such as we are today. Please uh, pray with me. Our Father, we do pray that you would impress upon us that Jesus really is the Messiah, the one foretold many years previously by the Hebrew prophets, the one that you uh, had planned from ages past. And Father, we pray that you would remove all doubts from our minds and help us then to bear witness to Jesus as the world's true King. In his name and for his sake, amen.